A small flight going from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, New Mexico is climbing out to their cruising altitude. What happened during the snow and fog on their climb out? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, for episode 18. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And today's episode's going to be short. <laughs> yeah, today's episode's going to be short, but this was a listener recommendation. We very much appreciate it, and I did. Uh, there's a couple interesting things in this. Yeah, so thanks to Megan's story for recommending this. She recommended it a couple months ago, but we're that's just how, now getting into it. That's how most of them are, is like, we, we'll try to let you know when it's coming out, but it's like, yeah, it's going to be a while. Yeah, we have a list. We have a list. We have a schedule to let us know what's coming up next. But so. we leave spaces and we fill in where we can. And if you're part of our Patreon on the ten dollar level, I think it is, then you get priority. So we'll boot our stuff, our planned stuff, for your recommendations. Unless it's like a really big one, then we probably won't. Like, but if it's if it's like I'm not gonna say a not big crash, but like a a less historic crash, we'll probably move it. Yeah. So right now we're not moving Tenerife. That is solid. Yes. The Concord that is not moving. Oh no 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 no! no. <laughs> Miranda's super excited. We That's... get to do the Concord episode after we go to Seattle. The so. day after we go see the Concord in I'm person. I'm so excited. <laughs> That'll be next week. Yeah, it is next week. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. But those are the big ones we have. So if you want to suggest something else that yeah. is big, that is not those. We know about most of the big ones, and we'll probably do them eventually. They're just not currently on our schedule. Those are the two big ones on our schedule at the yeah. moment. Uh, Japan Airlines 123 eventually will happen. The American Airlines, the DC-10, that'll happen eventually. All those things, you know, that'll, that'll all happen eventually. But if you have another recommendation, please throw them out there. Anything, and especially ones we don't know. Like, today's episode, that's what I really like about today's episode, it's actually. It's obscure. It is pretty obscure. I didn't really know. And it wasn't that far away from here, but it's also interesting enough. I'm like, hmm, that's kind of cool. That's, well, not cool, but hey, I don't know about that <laughs> That one. happened. I like it. All right, tell me more. All right, I'm so today, today we're covering TWA, or Transworld Airlines, Flight 260. This crash happened on February 19th of 1955. It was a Martin 404 with the tail number of November 40416. I know nothing about this kind of plane. Yeah, nope. the 404 is, uh, I'm not going to say it's a not interesting airplane, but it's kind of not. <laughs> it really was a work... I'm not going to say this thing, but yeah, that thing. <laughs> it's It really was a workhorse airplane, and it's pretty rare. There were short-haul twin piston engine airplane, cantilever, so the wings both tilt up from the lower part of the fuselage, which is normal, as most airplanes are. But in any case, it was a not a super common airplane. It was a short haul, and the 404 was a derivative of the 202 and the 303, but it was extended to have 40 passengers as opposed to 30-something. So it was a longer version of it, basically. And it was used mostly by the airlines for really short flights just to get people to and from. It was kind of the commuter airliner of the time. Regional. Yeah. Nice little airplane. It was it had it was pretty reliable during its time actually, and it was a decent airplane. But it first flew in 1951 for an airline. The last one actually was uh, retired. The last airworthy one was retired to Planes of Fame in Arizona in 2008. So they flew all the way until 2008. Wow. Yeah. Fancy. The last one. Yeah, the last one was retired to the desert in Arizona to the Planes of Fame Museum. Really want to go there someday. It's the one in Tucson. Is it just a bunch of planes parked out in the middle of the desert? Pretty much. Although there, just... a lot of them are very, very famous airplanes. So it'd be really cool. You just go out there and like walk around in the desert? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, they... <laughs> 
They have one little building, but most of them are really big airplanes, to be honest. So they just park them outside, and you can just go walk around them outside. It's kind of cool, actually. I would really like to go visit. We should go sometime. We should. All right. Continue. Anyways, the captain for this flight was Ivan Spong. The first officer was James Creason. There's not much information about their hours or anything that I could find, but that's their names. What the report did say is that they had both made this particular flight dozens of times, so they were not unfamiliar with the area. Yeah, they were very familiar with the area. And this was from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, which is 49 miles which is very short. It is very, very short. So what I found interesting about that is at 7.03 a.m., while the airplane was still on the ground getting ready to depart, the flight crew received their clearance to Santa Fe, but that clearance was entirely just an IFR approach or an instrument flight rules approach into Santa Fe. Because quite literally, they would be taking off and ascending themselves into the approach pattern for Santa Fe, because that's the whole flight. They would technically, being in Albuquerque, already be underneath the approach for Santa Fe. I mean, okay. Yeah, I guess. Yep. Was this at night or during the day? This was during the day. This was at 7.03 a.m. They got their clearance. Oh, okay, so pretty, their clearance. pretty early. Pretty early in the day. The flight crew was then cleared for takeoff, and they departed the runway at Albuquerque at 7.05 a.m. with 13 passengers and three crew on board. And that was the last communication the flight had with ATC during the whole flight. Was takeoff? Yep, their takeoff clearance. Oh, okay. It was also last seen on a high-speed, shallow ascent into the mountainous regions that split Albuquerque and Santa Fe that were buried in the clouds at the time. They're called the Sandia Mountains. They just descended and hit a mountain? They didn't descend. They were totally on their ascent. They were... Wait, they ascended into a mountain? <laughs> well, so knowing the area, yeah, I mean, they had to they had to climb pretty far. But, I mean, that said, they were last seen in an ascent, but not a very steep one. They were in a shallow oh, ascent. Oh, shallow ascent. Yep. To- going toward the mountains. Yep. And the mountains were in, buried in the clouds at the time. But the airplane and snow and snow. But the airplane wasn't an instrument was instrument rated. So and it was on an instrument approach technically. So the airplane could have flown into those conditions. It wasn't really an issue. The airplane was heading northeast towards Santa Fe at the time. But at 7:13 a.m., the plane crashed into Sandia Mountain. Yikes! All on board perished. Oh, okay. So I guess my my question is: they ascended. They were ascending to not. They weren't ascending enough. So they hit the mountain. Yep. That's pretty much it. They didn't ascend high enough, although there's a few other things that come to this, but we'll get to that in a minute. However, they crashed at about 9,000 feet above sea level, which was only about 3,000 feet above where they took off from. So they were and very much And it's only 13 miles away from the airport. Right. It's only 13 miles from Albuquerque. So, And it was only eight minutes later. It was only eight minutes after takeoff. So the unfortunate thing about this crash is that they were very close to having cleared the ridge. They were like 300 feet from having cleared the ridge, they would have made it over. But they were just shy of doing that. And they crashed into the mountains in the fog, in the clouds. Yikes. Going very fast because they were trying to ascend. Yep. What's investigation? Go, going back in history, this is before the NTSB. So this investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or as I will refer to them going forward, is CAB or the board. Or CAB. <laughs> CAB. They're quite literally posted almost everywhere as CAB, C-A-B. This was before the NTSB, this was before the FAA. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah. That's, I'm calling they it were, the CAB. They were the precursor to the FAA. I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it is a heck of a hike to get to this crash site. Because of that, it was really hard to go investigate. It was, there was snow, obviously, as we had talked about. Um, volunteers, including the New Mexico Mountain Club, assisted New Mexico State Police in finding the wreckage and doing some recovery. But they had to discontinue the initial 
investigation at the crash site because of the snow and the dangerous footing. I wouldn't want to be up there in the snow or anything like that either, so Mm -mm. I don't blame them. And because of that, they were unable to retrieve the wreckage. They could examine it on site, but they could not bring it down, and it rests there to this day. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys told us we could go visit it. Yeah, to this day, you can go visit this airplane, and actually, now I really want to go to Albuquerque, to be honest. Yeah, did they ever recover any bodies, though? Nope, actually, they buried them. Yep. They went up there. Yep, they went up there, and they buried them. Okay, well, at least we wouldn't find any bones. Yep, they found any (laughs) human... That was my big worry. No, they found any human remains they possibly could, and they buried them up there. It's probably haunted. Probably. (laughs) They did go back up two and a half months later in May, when it was a bit sunnier. Mm -hmm. And they actually went up three and a half years after the crash to do one final go around. To see if they could find anything about it, or... So... I'll get into it. Yeah, there's a few reasons why they went up again. So at the wreckage site, it was determined with a magnetic compass the first time that the flight was on a heading of 320 degrees when it crashed, and this was revised upon their third visit to the site in 1958 when a sun compass was used instead and found that the actual heading was 249 degrees. They were supposed to be on a heading of 35 degrees, but turned left all the way to 249. So from north-northeast direction to west-southwest, a change in 146 degrees to the left. It is suspected that the pilot suddenly realized how close they were to high terrain, either by seeing it with his own eyes or using instruments, but was too late in making a correction. Witnesses confirmed that that this is probable, that the crew didn't notice how close they were to the mountains because it was obscured by dense clouds and snow showers. Now, these pilots were well-versed, as I had said before, in this flight, this route, so you would think they knew what they were doing. Well, the CAB also thought that this was suspicious, so they decided to investigate this as an instrument problem, particularly with the Fluxgate compass system. This is a system of two compasses. Only one of them would need to give erroneous information for a problem with the flight to occur. One potential source of the problem in one of the two compasses would be a tilted Fluxgate transmitter gyro. There's a mouthful. Explain, please. (laughs) I have no idea what any of those words are. To work properly, part of the compass has to remain completely level regardless of the roll and pitch of the airplane. Just like a compass in your hand would. It doesn't work if you tilt it to one side. Oh, right, right, right. So to accomplish this, there is a small gyro in each compass and there's one compass on each wing oh okay if you've never experienced a gyro before it's a really curious thing it's literally a tiny really fast spinning weight do you remember in jurassic world fallen kingdom how the kids were going around in that ball thing and running around the park while the volcano was exploding that wasn't fallen kingdom but yes the gyrosphere yeah oh it wasn't no it was in the first movie Oh. I mean, there's one in the second one, too, but the one you're talking about is in the first movie. So do you remember? <laughs> yeah, <Jurassic> obviously, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I couldn't remember. Which one. So in that contraption, like, they were level the whole time, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they were rolling in all sorts of different directions. Ah, ah gyro. Gyro. Gyro sphere. Yeah. Got it, got it, got So it. in a gyro, there's a tiny weight that's spinning really, really fast, and it uses centrifugal force to keep it still. It keeps it from tilting in any direction. It keeps using that same direction that it's spinning to hold it completely still. There's a lot of physics around that, and I took a whole class on it, and I would like to not revisit that nightmare, so let's move on. There's a lot of instruments, okay. actually. There's a lot of instruments in airplanes that actually still use gyros. Most small airplanes still use gyros in most of their instruments, but that's kind of beside the point. This was a really curious case for this particular compass, also because of where it was mounted. So this particular model had a self-resetting or self-erection feature that was controlled in the cockpit with a flick of a switch that would pull the gyro nearly vertical and then it would correct itself into a flat position while it was still on the ground. 
It is possible that because the self-erection correction rate was really slow, like it took two degrees per minute to fall flat, really slow. It is possible that it didn't have time to become completely flat before they took off. So it was tilted. However, it is unknown if this is the case because the gyro, if the gyro was the source of a compass failure, only one of them was found and it was in parts. So they can't determine if that's really what happened. And the one that was found in parts, like they can't determine from that one if that was the one that was tilted or not because it was smashed. So I'm, ge- I'm getting a little confused here. So let me ask questions so I'm not as confused. So is the compass in the... I defer to Nick cockpit is it on the wings do so they this, have stuff on the wings that go to the cockpit like what's so exactly working? that's the curious thing is if i re, if i read this correctly and let me i'm trying to find it but i believe it said that the the actual mechanism the gyro mechanism that was feeding the information to the cockpit was mounted on the tip of the wings that's what i got but i wanted to make sure i was right. yeah it's so, mounted on the tips of the wings and then it fed information to their rmi if the one on the co-pilot side had failed the number two gyro for the compass, it turns out that it would have affected three of the four heading indicators in the cockpit, both on the co-pilot side and one on the captain's side, not just the ones on the co-pilot side, because both of, I think it was both of the RMIs were tied to the number two one for some reason. I, I guess I'm still confused about what is connected on the wings and what's in the cockpit. I'm so not- the gyros on the wings. But the indicators in the cockpit. And it literally just is feeding data from that gyro. About which direction they're pointing. To the cockpit. So there's literally, imagine the gyro is the one that's getting the data about the the heading. So that's like the compass. And then it just has a cable connected to their instruments in the cockpit. And that's just giving them the indication. So was it electric? No, it's analog. It's analog. It's analog. I I guess I'm just having a hard time figuring out how that would work. But I don't know. I (laughs) This takes a lot of physics long, long, long over my head and it's really old it's a very yeah. old well system. yes it's not a system used in this, this report calls out a lot of things like adf which and vhf which are two things that we just don't use in aviation anymore very high frequency which they do still use I have vhf no idea what those are they do still use vhf uh very high frequency bands for navigation and it also calls out adf but adf is basically am radio and there's still a handful of airplanes that have them but i mean if you have them it's like a paperweight take it out (laughs) it's a really it's a really 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 old way of navigating airplanes at this point like literally it's it's primitive it's one of the very first forms of navigation they had so if that had failed on the first officer's side yep then three of the heading what they used to figure out the headings would have been incorrect correct okay now that kind of sort of makes sense they don't know if it was that one though they just figured out that that could be a case Yes, they can't conclusively say well, if they this, failed or which one failed. This is before the time of simulators and... Uh, so ADF is an automatic direction finding, FYI, in aviation. And it, it yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a weird little hunk of device. The, the only way they could have recreated it is if they did it in another airplane. Yeah, basically. If they could they even figure had, out how to do that. They would have had to like pin the driver in a tilted position. Yeah. But to be clear, this incident was by far and away not the most important one at the time that the cab was uh, investigating. Worrying about? Yeah. No, it wasn't. Because around this time were some of the deadliest accidents in aviation history. And this was not one of those. <laughs> not at all. This was much lower on the list. Well, only, what, 15 people? 
died. 16. 16 people died. Yep, 16 people perished. It was a very short flight and a very small route that's not traveled very often. And so it's, it take basically, they have to prioritize what is, what are the people going to look at the most versus what do the people care about the most? You know, like. And they probably weren't a huge organization anyway. Not at the time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so I found the definition for RMI which is the indicators that they had in the cockpit, and it's just literally radiomagnetic indicator. That makes so sense. So I think that's the one that was tied to that both of them. It was tied to both, yes. That is what they both had. Both were tied to the number two Correct. compass, though. Yep. That's weird. <laughs> so we'll talk about this later, but today things have changed. Obviously. Not the yes. case anymore. <laughs> that's just poor There's management a stuff. culture of redundancy in aviation now, where... There's fail-safes. You got a backup of your backup of your backup. Yep. Exactly. And normally, if you have two sensors or anything equivalent, you will not run off of one sensor unless your plane's name is the MAX. We won't get into that. (laughs) No more talking. (laughs) That is not the only one. we said that. (laughs) And that is not the only one either. But We talked about it a little bit. Well, you could kind of talk about it with the Air France flight that had the Pinot tube that got frozen. Yeah, the pitot tubes are a curious thing, but yeah, pitot tubes feed a lot of data to the airplane, airspeed, altitude, that kind of stuff, and they have a tendency to freeze over, even if it looks like it's clear outside. When you get up to that high altitude, they just freeze. And then they put in a heater so that wouldn't happen anymore. Right, well, and they had the heaters even during a lot of incidents that happened, and people just didn't turn on the pedo heat. That's so dumb. And that, caused, <laughs> that causes, and the, the problem is the, the accidents usually happen at night. They don't realize their pedo tube is frozen. They don't look at all the indications they have, and they don't realize their pedo tube is, is frozen. And they don't realize that basically they've stalled the airplane. Yeah, we can cover or that. Or it's stalled in, itself. In Air France sometime, that mm-hmm. one. That one, I don't know if it actually has a report or not, but. Oh, I'm sure it does. Um. In any case. It doesn't have That one's episode, very famous, yeah. Side note yeah. for you. C. If pito ever ends up having to be a word on the website, it's spelled P-I-T-O-T. It's pitot. Is it French? Probably. I have no idea, but probably, yeah. I feel like that would be French. P-I-T-O-T. <laughs> no offense, our French listeners, I used to, yeah. but French is real weird. <laughs> I used to have, I, I had people that I worked with, like, spelt it P-I-T-O-E, P-I-T-O, and I was like, it's P-I-T-O-T. That is literally the only way P-tot. it is spelled. It's pitot. Pitot. Yeah. Pitot. I learned that in my fluids thermal lab. Mm-hmm. Pito. Where, uh, so the school I go to is CU Denver, University of Colorado, Denver, and there is a giant wind tunnel in one of the buildings that is no longer technically their building, but they can't move this giant wind tunnel. Yep. So that's what we got to use to do all of our stuff, which mostly was with a pito tube or several. Yeah. All right. So continue with the investigation stuff. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the probable cause, and then I'm going to get into a slight rant about it. Okay. So the final probable cause. Yeah. I'll get into it. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a deviation from the prescribed flight path for reasons unknown. Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) 
That's not a probable cause. Yeah, basically. So they didn't know exactly what happened. They knew what happened. And that's it. There's no recommendations either. There's no recommendations and there's no findings. Yeah, they hit a mountain. However. They ascended into a mountain. This was the second report they had released. The first final report. Yes, that is a fun phrase. The first final report had a slightly different probable cause. I can't find anywhere what the exact verbiage I can. Hold on. Actually. (laughs) It's in here. It's in the report. Um, he just stole my thunder. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I literally read it verbatim. Um, You're not talking into your pop filter. I know. It's because I'm, <laughs> I'm reading, okay? I can't read with a pop filter in my face. That's true. It's really hard to read by, by your pop filter. I'm going to not cut as much of this episode because it's going to be real short as it is. So free blooper reel embedded. So the original probable cause was determined to have been the lack of co- of conformity with prescribed en route pres- procedures and a deviation from airways at an altitude too low to clear obstructions ahead. And it doesn't have any more, but I know that it also includes the word intentional. Intentional. So oh, they thought it was intentional. But they didn't. They didn't, That's though. That's actually the curious part. Why does it have the word intentional in it? Exactly. And like, this, don't put that word so in there. So the first report came out... In October of 1955, which was eight months after the accident. It was one of the fastest produced reports in aviation history. So, this was a really weirdly worded probable cause. And it caused to a, it caused a rumor that there was a suicide pact between the pilots. This was not the case. But because people interpret it that way, it caused problems. The captain's wife was getting death threats from surviving, or from the passengers' families. That's what they suspect anyway. That's a lot for the 1950s. Yeah, she was getting phone calls with people giving her death threats because they, these people believed that her husband. husband had killed these people on purpose. And that's just because the report had read intentional. However, that's not what they intended. <laughs> so the second report was released two years later and amended the probable cause. And they were able to do this because the CAB had a specific policy that no investigation was ever officially closed. You, it is always always open for submission of new and pertinent evidence. You could argue that most incidents these days are the same with the NTSB. It's just not explicit. They're willing to change them. However, yeah, it's it's not explicitly their their rule. They do like to have a final report that says this is what happened. Yeah. Here's what we found. Here's and what we suggest. You I think do. the biggest reason for that is because the CAB, especially in this incident, first of all, it was a lot more difficult for them to determine what was happening in aircraft crashes versus these days where they have black boxes and such. Yeah, so they can find out more information. So they can about find out a lot on. more information. Um, the CAB also had limited teams for accidents like this. It was very difficult to investigate this one. They couldn't pull the wreckage from the mountain, those kinds of things. So accidents like this were very, very, very difficult to come up with a probable cause and very difficult to get all the information they needed. And that, tied with the fact that the CAB didn't issue, issue recommendations and findings at the time, also meant that basically they would leave it open all the time. It just didn't make any sense for them. Like, they weren't making recommendations based on what they found. Although, I'm, there were changes to the industry anyways. But until they had the means of investigating further and they could actually make recommendations based on real data they had, then it was it's difficult for them to do such a thing. Interesting. 
So what other things have changed in regards to navigational aids such that this could never happen again? So the ground proximity warning system obviously would but be that's, one of those. That is many decades later. Yeah, yes. well, and we've well, talked about that. And I wouldn't before. necessarily say that's a navigational aid. I would say it like prompts you that you're going to run into something. Yes. Well, that way, if they had had it, they probably wouldn't have run into the mountain. I, and I mean, I don't know, maybe they would have if they were that close, but... Well, and there's no cockpit voice recorder to go off of. So you wouldn't, you don't really know, but I mean, it, it gives you a second to be like, even if you can't see it type thing, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, hi, there's like stuff like, hey, you <laughs> should do something about that. Uh, we're going to scream at you till you do something about that. <laughs> So, yeah, that's a lot of... Having warnings and stuff in the cockpit has definitely changed a lot. They didn't have a whole lot of warnings related to the airplane's location, definitely, um, because that was basically impossible. (laughs) Um, They only had things related to the mechanics of the airplane, warnings related to the mechanics of the airplane. So if something was going wrong with some part of the airplane, they could have a warning for that. Like if you had a fire? If you had a fire, an engine failure, if, you know, some flight control services issues, they could have warnings for that but but at the time yeah they didn't really have much in relation to the airplane's location itself now but that's not a that's not a perfect fix so the reality no. is you know they flew into conditions that they were allowed to fly in they knew the route but they ended up in a place that they weren't supposed to be and that's where they call out that's why they said intentionally because they know the the route and they ended up in a place that they weren't supposed to be so they they call it intentional because they're saying they were intentionally flying the airplane based on the instruments they had, but that intentional part of it was misinterpreted. So they removed, they deleted the intentional part from their their final probable cause. But that said, there's a lot of navigal, navigational aids, even back then, but nowadays, that you can use. And even nowadays, it's, a lot of them are outdated, to be honest, but they work pretty well. VORs were existed then, but are a lot more prevalent now. There's a lot more of them, a lot of intersections. Um, so basically, you have airways when you fly. And there probably wouldn't be an airway, to be honest, between Albuquerque and Santa Fe, but that would be usable. But airways are highways in the sky. You'll see the same air, you'll see airplanes flying exactly the same line in the sky over and over and over. And you think, how in the world do you get, you know, 16 different airplanes to fly from all these different cities onto the same lines through across the entire country? Well, there's highways in the sky and they have intersections, much like you'd have on a road. They're just invisible. They're generally little buildings on the ground that, that put out either a frequency or they are GPS points or something of that nature. GPS obviously was the biggest changing factor in aviation these days. GPS made everything a lot more accurate. And then they changed in airplanes like the Martin 404, they changed from this flux gate compass to a lot more standard compass types, as well as uh, more fixed gyro compass in the instruments themselves that would prevent it from having a lot of deviation or interference so there's a, there's a quite a few things that are very 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 different in navigating an airplane these days this was definitely primitive at the time and to be fair they were only flying these airplanes on smaller routes to and from like albuquerque and santa fe which would be the equivalent of like flying from denver to colorado springs yep actually it's even shorter than that similar yeah it's even shorter than that it it's... would be like flying from 
where we are right now in Aurora, probably to... Just triangulating ourselves. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry about it. Well, they Aurora's a big place. Where in Aurora, yeah. <laughs> Aurora's very big. Um, it would be like from where we are to very close to where I work, which is about 30 miles away. Yeah, which is basically almost DIA. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit farther it than that. Yeah, it would be a little but... bit further than that. It's actually closer in proximity to probably what the distance would be from DC, from like. Yeah, from like DC to Baltimore. Very oh, short. Dang. Yeah, very short. It's very short. Very, very short. Well then. Yeah. This was this was it was only forty nine miles in a straight distance. Straight line distance. It's very, very short flight. The whole and flight was not probably... a lot of people were probably on board because you could just drive it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's not really a reason to be on a plane for somewhere you can drive. No, it'd mostly easily. be business related, maybe flying home, visiting family or something like that. But Anyways, or it was a connecting flight. Or well, yeah, that's they most could of the only fly under... into Albuquerque, and then they flew to Santa Wait, Fe from there. Which is bigger, Albuquerque or Santa Fe? Albuquerque for sure. So then, why would they fly? Never mind. <laughs> it's like, why do people fly from Denver to Colorado Springs? Well, most of them were visiting family in Chicago and had to fly through Denver to get back. Oh, uh, <laughs> never mind. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you can still go see this crash site. Um, there are two ways to see it. One of them is to hike. Um, you take the Domingo Baca Trail, um, and it takes you basically straight to the crash site. There's a little turnoff that's really easy to miss, apparently. It is seven miles round trip. It is an intermediate or difficult hike with an ascent of 2,100 feet. That's like nothing for us, by the way. In Colorado, technically, no. Yeah, but for other people who don't go hiking around 14ers every day. Well, to be fair, I okay, mean, it we would, don't go every day. It would still be tough enough. I mean, to be we're honest. just used to altitude, so you, it, as you get higher, we'd be like, this is easy. <laughs> to breathe, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to breathe. Um, yeah, and there's a, there's a placard at the site that details what happened, and they ask you to be respectful and don't, like, touch the wreckage. Yeah, because that's rude. Um, the other way you can go see it is there is a tramway that goes over it. Yeah, there is. And it is the largest tramway in the Americas. Wow. And it's the third largest in the world. Actually, third longest tramway. So you just look cable out car, of the tram? Cable yeah. car, for those who don't know what's... And see, what's I'd mean. rather go hike to it. I think that would be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool, but I would also like to take the tram just simply because it is kind of that neat. I mean, so, it goes... So hear me out. Long one. We, we hike... And then we take the tram up. Oh, and you can bring a dog. Can we talk about it? That's pretty great. You guys don't have dogs, but we can bring yeah. Milo. Milo would love it. So He'd there's... also pull us up the mountain. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so there's actually quite a few things, cra- crashes like this, um, particularly around that time period where, unfortunately, they just hit mountains. <laughs> and the truth is, is that a lot of times when that happens... They couldn't recover people. They couldn't recover wreckage around that time. And even these days, it's just not... doesn't make sense to. Well, and it happens that way around the world, too. Like, yes. you were telling us... I can't yeah. remember when. In... That on Mont Blanc, there are two plane crashes. Yeah. And the glacier, as it moves, is spitting out parts still. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, they couldn't recover the parts from the, the glaciers in, in Chamonix on, on Mont Blanc, the tallest mountain in the Alps. And they... The biggest problem with it is, yeah, at the time, like, they're really high up. It's very difficult to get to. 
there's no means of moving big pieces or anything. So these days, there's pieces of the airplane spitting out of the bottom of the glacier because glaciers flow like rivers. Very slow, but they flow. And there's literally pieces that keep popping up at the bottom of these glaciers. People take them and they donate them to museums. They're, as you walk around Chamonix, the town at the bottom of Mont Blanc, there's uh, like pieces in front of restaurants, like landing gear pieces and stuff. It's technically it's technically illegal to take them home. Um, they say if you find them, you should turn them over to the authorities or a museum or something of that nature. Well, that makes sense. It belongs to the, the crash site, and it's pretty disrespectful to just take a crashed plane part. It is. You'd be surprised how often that happens, though. Oh, it doesn't surprise me that it happens. It's just really rude, and yeah. you shouldn't do it. So be good people. Don't do that. Yeah. Anytime there's been a major incident near a city of an airplane, they start almost immediately, they get people that walk into the crash site before authorities have had the chance to block it off, and they just start taking pieces away. We talked about that. Yeah, looting We talked about that with uh, Garuda. Garuda. People, like, they thought someone walked off with the black boxes. Don't touch anything. (laughs) Thankfully, that didn't happen, but yeah, don't. And especially because it can get you in a whole lot of trouble if they find out you took it. Oh, yeah. You, it's like jail time, like real bad fees and stuff. Don't, just don't do it. Yeah. And. (laughs) Also, disrespectful. People died. They need to figure out what happened. Right. You know, and if you take something that could have been a pertinent, had pertinent information, you know. Which is what they thought had happened at Garuda. Yeah. Right. It's it's not okay. Like, it's just not. So just don't do it. Yeah. And there's another incident. Uh, like this one that actually happened here in Colorado. It was a smaller airplane, um, and you can go visit that one too. It's in. A, it's. I've actually been up there. It's a really cool hike, but it's pretty long. Um, Where is it? It's in northern Colorado. It's up somewhere. Well, yeah. What's the range called? My dad Hold would on, be I screaming found, at me right so now. So I found four haunted hikes that lead to aircraft crash sites in Colorado. Yeah, see, there's a handful of them. And there's also um, one in Laramie, actually. So there is a C-49J military cargo plane mm-hmm. around Pikes Peak. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. There's a B-24 long-range bomber. Wow. Um, seven died on that one. Where was that? It gives me a lot of... Uh, Lone Pine Mountain. Oh, yeah, I don't know that one. I have no idea where that one is. I have no idea where that is. I didn't know about that one. That would actually be a really interesting one. Guess what I'm going to do. I'm going to look up where Lone Pine Mountain is. That would be an interesting Um, one to see, though. There's a T-33 training plane on Cheyenne Mountain. Interesting. Ah. And a UH-1 Huey helicopter on Almagra Mountain. Huh. None of those are the ones. Tree Mountain? Yeah. None of those are the ones that I'm thinking of that I've been to. Well, give me a minute, okay? It's okay. My Google skills are not. So there's also a... A famous one that happened in Laramie, Wyoming, just outside of Laramie, Wyoming. It was a United flight. Was it a B-17? It was not a B-17. No, the one in Colorado. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. You're helpful. It is just north of Fort Collins. Oh. We should go visit. Yeah. See, it's like... Oh, yeah. It's right there. Fort Collins is right here. Loveland's right here. Yeah, so it's in northern Colorado. Yeah. It's in northern Colorado. Interesting. Anyways, um, yeah, the one. The national forest. The the national forest? Which national forest? There's a lot of them. The Rocky Mountain National Forest? A moderate six mile hike through the national forest leads to a fascinating array of wreckage from a World War II era B 17 bomber. Does it say what mountain's on? Nope. 
Uh, so, fun fact, there's, like, so many national forests. <laughs> um, in any case, the one in Laramie was actually, and that's not that far away from here either, it was United Airlines DC-4 that crashed and killed 66 people, and at the time, it was tied for the third deadliest aviation accident in the world. Jesus. Well, that changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it changed a lot, but yeah, 66 people, and it was tied actually with a mid-air collision with uh, two military airplanes. Ooh. <laughs> And uh, another airline crash. What do you remember? What year? Around what year? That was about that 1960. Happened? 1960. Okay. Yeah, it was in. I think it was 1960. Actually, yeah. There's yeah. a website called Colorado Wreck Chasing. <laughs> That's. Yes. Man, we went down a rabbit hole. Oh no. <laughs> we should we should put this in the post episode. Maybe. Talk okay. a little bit about. We'll talk about it later. Talk a little bit about that. You can oh, listen wait. if you're a patron. I had, I had a thing that I wanted to say at the beginning of the episode, and you kept interrupting me, and now I can't remember what it was. Well, hey, sorry. I had something to do with cockpit instruments, but now I can't remember what it was. Dang it. All right, well, maybe I'll bring it up in the post episode if I can remember. All right, sorry about the short episode this week. But thanks for listening, and thanks for the recommendation. Yes. Story. This and was. Please thank- request more things. And thank you for all of those who keep emailing us with the requests. Uh, we very much appreciate it. We have put every single one into our list so far. So. Yeah. So please um, email us. You can also Facebook us too. Some people have done that too. Uh, or instant message us, DM us on Instagram. We will figure it out on where to put it, unless we've already done it. So someone had asked to do. Alaska 261, and I've already done that as a Miranda episode, so we will not cover it in our main episode, so, so if you want to listen to it, you have to be a patron. So go be a patron. <laughs> I've also done, I don't know if it's up yet, but Air Florida Flight 90. Yeah. Well, it's not up yet, but it, by the time this goes up, it might be up, so you never know. So I've done Air Florida Flight 90 next month, Mar- the month of March will be United Airlines 266. So, if you want a little bit more content, you want to hear us blab about stuff, about our lives and stuff. And get a bunch of other cool stuff. stuff. Yeah. Um, Please, you can look on the website to see what's included. You can look on the Patreon page. You can look on our Facebook page. So, go for it. And um, hopefully, you enjoy it if you need to get more in, you know, every week. We appreciate the networking and the emails and the, I mean, you guys have been awesome. Speaking of networking, I want to take a second to plug a YouTube series that has um, recently caught our interest and we caught theirs. Um, It is called The Black Box Series, with black box being one word. Um, It's run by a guy named Jonathan Mayer, and he does something pretty similar to us. He's a little more short and sweet about it, a little less technical mumbo-jumbo. Um, but he has all the visuals that we can't show you because we're a podcast. And, and he does a good job. He, he does. does a really good job. He So hopefully by the time you listen to this, you will have already listened to American Airlines 587. That was his second episode. Yeah, which is interesting because he didn't even know we had recorded that. Yep. The same week, basically. <laughs> yeah, so go check him out. And he also plugged us in one of the episodes. On that episode. One, on that episode. So... You know, go take go, go if check you like our podcast, go check him out on YouTube. Yay networking. Yay. And also, I mean, really, I mean he really I think he really likes what we do and genuinely and it seems like we get that from 
everybody. I mean, and I really well, like. And thank you because you're probably listening to this. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, we <laughs> and appreciate for putting. It. I think you're the one who put one uh, a recommendation on Facebook. Like thanks. Yeah, and a we, lot. <laughs> we appreciate it greatly. We really appreciate you guys reaching out and and yeah being thankful and, and so, yeah, liking go, it and go check him out. He's on YouTube. Um, the channel name is the Black Box. Black Box being one word series. The Black Box series. Also, make sure if you're listening on Apple, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get up the list so more people start to look at it and listen. Most of our listens come from Apple Podcasts. We so can we're see that. You. <laughs> we can see that from our end. So please go and um, give us a review. Give us a five-star review uh, to help us um, continue to do this for you guys. So, And if you have any other kinds of suggestions, please let us know. Even if it's like, hey, that Chris guy that you had on your show, you should bring him back. Oh, don't give him too much of an ego, friend. <laughs> I don't have to see him every week now, so it's tolerable. <laughs> One of the biggest things we need right now, is, though, is we need to help get some help spreading this like wildfire. Like, we know we're not the greatest at social media and we're trying, but we need some help from you guys to like help us spread what we do like yeah. wildfire. We want you to... To spread it to all your friends and get people listening. You'd be amazed how many people are like, wow, that's actually really interesting. Especially once they get to listening. As I found out, um, people who really like listening to true crime have that same kind of morbid fascination. So, yeah. obviously, because we also listen to true crime podcasts. Miranda is wearing her crime junkie sweatshirt As right I now. always do, like yep. every Sunday. Every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I started listening to crime junkies, is Christy told me about it. And then I started listening, and then I binged through all their episodes. And she so, supports them on Patreon. Yeah, I do, because I, I ran out of episodes. As does like, my mother. More. As does yeah, my mother. I got everyone hooked. Yeah. So, I mean, we would love for that to happen to us. So make sure you tell your friends, tell your family, uh, tell your coworkers, you know, anyone who you think might enjoy. Uh, and thank you for listening to us rant a little bit this episode. It was kind of short, so. We're we trying gotta, not to jip you. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> All right, we are signing off. Have a good week. Well, that was TWA 260, right? Yep. I yeah. got it this week. See, I'm learning. Good TWA job. 260. 260. Have a great week, uh, and we'll we'll see, talk to you talk then. to you next week. I always want to say see Still you. Talk to that. you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.